3: It's the Son of a Butch podcast. We come to you every Wednesday. Happy New Year. Took a couple weeks off. Hope everyone had a happy and safe holiday season. Um, got a little cold weather here in Florida for Christmas, which was nice. So, um, But I hope everybody had fun. Um, so the pod is back. And this week, Gil Hance, probably the hottest architect in in golf architecture, um, certainly from a major championship uh, standpoint. I mean, Gil seems to be that guy right now that all the governing bodies, um, specifically the U.S. Open, uh, they seem to be choosing Gill to come in and do a lot of the redesigns. We talk about that. Um, he did a redesign of the of the Winkfoot course that Bryson DeChambeau won the U.S. Open on, redesign of the U.S. Open course, uh, the country club that Matt, Spitt, Matt Fitzpatrick won on last year, and Los Angeles Country Club uh, redid that one. And that's where the us open will be held this year um i love his work um i like him as a person i think he's a really really cool guy i like the aesthetic and um listen golf architecture is is, is a hot topic right um from an aesthetic standpoint from a um distance standpoint from a, a design standpoint and, and gil is definitely at the forefront of golf course architecture in 2022 so sit back and enjoy the interview with gil hans Well, Gil, thanks um,
4: for taking the time to do this. Um, we've had, uh, I've had golf instructors, I've had professional golfers, but to um, get a golf course architect like yourself, that's a, that's a huge thing. And um, I'm super excited to talk to you. Full disclosure, when I was younger, uh, my dad was building uh, South Shore Harbor in Clear Lake, uh, Texas for um, Bruce Devlin and Von Aege, And I worked in the summertime on, Helping him build the golf course.
2: So you know what it's like. This, it's, that's I mean, the only way to do it. Get your hands it dirty. Is,
4: it is amazing, you know, when you look at what golf courses become. I mean, that experience has always kind of shaped my view of it. You know, we were, you know, putting in the drains and the bunkers, and then filling it up with the gravel. And you know, they were still fill, you know, grading the lake parts, and then they were shaping the greens. When you when you see a golf course um, from start to finish. It is an amazing process, and it's something that I think for someone like you to get to do that on a regular basis, it must just be an amazing
2: experience. It is, and, and and first and foremost, it's fun. I mean, to see, you know, you see probably, you know, with with what you do, you see a progression. I mean, maybe you're you're that good that you see instant results, but you you know, you work with a student and you see. The progression over time and and from us it's like a daily thing you can at the end of the day I've, I've said this before my favorite time on site is when we shut the machines off and we get out of them and we look at what we've accomplished that day and you can see what you've shaped you can see the creation all of these things and i think that's number one it's rewarding because it's quiet you're finally out of the machine and and number two the sun's usually going down and so it's just that special special time on site but having The ability to see a daily result over and over again and then you know shifting landscapes different projects etc is one of the more rewarding parts of what we get to do
4: why golf instruction for you Gil? i mean talk me through you know what made you get into this why you did it and how you started
2: yeah it's um i came to golf you know later like i was uh, 16 i think my grandfather was the only golfer in our family and uh, he hung the moon as far as I was concerned. I just I idolized him. I've never met a nicer man. And just the way he handled himself it was, it was a great role model. And when he invited me to go play golf, it was like, yes. And and I think I fell in love with the golf landscape then. I'm not sure if it was because he was in that golf landscape or whether it was just the beauty of it. I'd never seen anything like that or experienced it. And then it got to be a point where I just, you know, over time went along and you know, went to – School studied political science and history, which you know was where I thought I was going to go with my. I life.
4: had the I had the exact same major, by the way. Did you really? <laughs> <laughs> We're uh, both in the golf so, industry.
2: So you know, yeah, exactly. you know exactly. It's like, okay, now what do you do when you have that? So <laughs> I, wound up, I wound up going to, to Cornell and studying city and regional planning, and not landscape architecture. And I met a guy named Tom Griswold, who subsequently went on to work for Tom Fazio for years and years. Uh, He was studying to be a golf architect, and uh, I went home. Tracy and I were engaged at the time. We've been married now for 36 years. I went home and said, listen, you can do this. You can actually become a golf architect. I doodled holes for forever, and it was going to mean another year of school because I didn't have a design undergrad, but she was incredibly supportive and switched gears right then and there. So It was was not a linear path by any stretch of the imagination, but come to say, and I'm, I'm sure it helps you as well, you know, the history of the game, understanding, appreciating it, you know, if, if through your eyes, the evolution of the golf swing and the equipment and technology through our eyes, the evolution of golf courses, and especially when we deal with a lot of these great old clubs, that's an important part of it. And, and you know, as well, club politics are brutal. So having an understanding of, you know, sort of the political science, how you deal with people, how you handle people. So while it wasn't um, a direct benefit to me, it's, it's had, it's, that degree combination has paid off over the years. You said that you did a lot
4: of drawings and stuff like that. I mean, I think, you know, I'm 53, um, you know, we're certainly not young people. And I think now you can go, you can go online and look at all of the great golf courses, there's videos, there's so much content, there's so much information out there. But when I was growing up, my dad had all these great old books and there were the, you know, the top, hundred golf courses in the world you know it was a book probably in the 70s and I remember just looking through it and it had you know pictures of the holes and then it had like a little aerial map of what the layout was and I used to go on take you know magic markers and you know draw all these you know fancy holes and try and make golf courses and my dad was like you have no idea what the hell you're doing that's never going to work Is it? but I just love the the drawing and the the over, I remember we lived in Morocco at, and my dad was the first golf pro at Royal Dar the Trent Jones, um, they had 54 holes there. And they, they had, I mean, we moved there in the 70s and they had this, like, it's like a, I guess it was a model of the golf course that, you know, that, Actually, you know, those old ones from the 70s. Yeah. It was like so actually yeah. a real. It was big. It was really big. And it was covered in like a dome case and everything. And I just always remember being fascinated by that. And then after the Ryder Cup in Paris, I went back to Royal d'Arcelain for the first time. I hadn't been back to Morocco since the 70s. And it was still there. It was still, <laughs> and I mean, you know, it was like the little, you know, the little tiny flags, yeah, like pins and stuff. So I was always fascinated with it. Um, I read a quote that you said that, your job is to identify which of the properties natural elements you want to emphasize. So when you go and you look at a site, um, do you think in 2022 Gil, we're getting for new build golf courses, we're getting more for you guys, more interesting sites than we have in the past? Because if you look at where great golf courses historically are being, you know, built the old school ones, they're in urban areas, right? You know, if you look at, you know, wing L.A. Country Club, Southern. These are in urban, urban areas. And I think so many of the great, great new build design golf courses are going to some amazing locations. Um, why do you think there is that push to do that now?
2: I think we went through a period of time in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s where golf development and design, with the with a few exceptions, obviously, were, were predicated on golf as an amenity right? It was there to sell lots. It was there to uh, feature a a housing development or there were, you know, golf wasn't the primary focus. And then we went through a really steep decline in golf construction and new golf courses and starting in the early 2000s and running for a period of time where nobody was building golf courses. The only ones who were doing it were the visionaries. You had Dick Young's cap at at Hills a little prior to that. Then Mike Kaiser came along, then Rich Mack at Streamsong. And so you had people who were willing to embrace the vision of quality golf will attract people to go anywhere. Right. And it's you're literally in the middle of nowhere. in a lot of these things, you know, and we had the great fortune of Michael Walrath doing the same thing at a hoopie match club. So you, you had people whose primary focus was golf first and foremost, and with the concept of, you know, field of dreams, build it, and they will come the thing that you pointed out, which was interesting. And it was nowhere near as remote, but back in the day, You know, LACC, Wingfoot, Southern Hills, they were outside the city. I mean, it was a lot. It it took people a long time to get there. So they were considered remote as it related to the modes of transportation at the time.
4: You know, my dad talks about that when he comes down to Seminole because, you know, my grandfather was the head bro there for forever and he grew up there. So where the, the when you go into Seminole on the left hand side, the maintenance barn, the house that's there. My dad says, listen, that's where we used to live. And he said, you know, when we came here in the, you know, in the 40s and the 50s, this was just all sand dunes. There was nothing here. So you're. it's actually the golf courses like Wingfoot, they were outside of the city. But now when you go out there, they're so penned in. And one of the things that I think it, it's interesting that you mentioned, I never thought of that. But a lot of the great, you know, the old school golf courses that they would want to have major championships at in 2022, there just isn't the, the land and the infrastructure for everything that it would take to have a major championship there. But you're right. I mean, Southern Hills, we were just there for the PGA. That would have been way outside of the city back in the day, but you don't you don't think that way. That's that's a really interesting thought. You mentioned Southern Hills. They just had the PGA there in 2022. Um, I was there, oh gosh, it's got to be 01 was the last time I was there for the US Open that um, Ratif Goosen um one Gil. that golf course is unrecognizable from what it was 20 years ago i mean i got there and i was like i couldn't remember any of the holes because the golf course looks so so much different um the task when you're i mean you're being tasked i mean if you look at last year the major championships the country club you guys did work on that southern hills you did work on that um L.A. Country Club, where the U.S. Open is in 2023. You've done work there. Wingfoot. Um, when you get the call to do something like this, is it that call that a, a, an, a golden era golf course gives you guys the call? Is it excitement? Is it um, wonderment? Is it, what's the feeling when you get the call and you know you're going to get it? I mean, To get an opportunity to go to a place like the Country Club, you know, that's, you know, 1800s, um, Wingfoot, all the history there, how much of it is excitement, trepidation, responsibility that you feel that you've been given this huge task to basically take a master work of art and now change it?
2: uh it's all of the above i mean all of the emotions that you mentioned it's i'm still at heart the biggest golf geek nerd when it comes to golf courses i mean uh, when i drive into the country club i will still wave to the cardboard cutout that's sitting in the you know the guard shack and it's just these little things that you you have these pinch me moments of wow you know they're they're trusting us with this as you said work of art this masterpiece and i think you know the way jim wagner and i have always approached these things is with the ultimate Ultimate amount of respect for the original architect, and trying to do the best we can. And back to my history um, degree, trying to really delve into what did they do here? What did Perry Maxwell do at Southern Hills? I don't care what Perry Maxwell did in Oklahoma City or at Colonial; it doesn't really matter. I don't care what Tillinghast did at San Francisco Golf Club. What matters is what did he do at Wingfoot? And on and on, and and I think that. That level of precision, and, and trust me, we were so lucky that we work at these great places that, that they have great archives. So we can go back and look at aerial photographs of every shot sequence of Bobby Jones when he won the 1929 US Open at Wingsfoot. You know, those don't exist at some other places. And so you do the homework, you do the best that you possibly can, uh, when we found the, the 1929 US Women's Amateur program at Oakland Hills that had photos of every single green complex taken from the fairway, it was like the gold mine because now we could literally stand in the same place and look at that and try to recreate it. So it's a similar formula, whether it's Oakmont or whether it's Wingfoot or whether it's you know the Creek Club or Sleepy Hollow or some of these great old courses that are never going to host major championships, yet still we we focus as much as we possibly can on getting all those details right and figuring it out. And then the other part of it is that we've got to trust that what Perry Maxwell did at Southern Hills in 1936 is still relevant to challenge somebody like Justin Thomas in 2022 and to to test the best players. And the answer is yes. And I think that's one of the things that served Jim and I the best is that we've granted we have to add back tees we have to shift bunkers we have to do things to accommodate the the distance that they play but at the core of the golf course the strategy and the interest and and as you said earlier finding the best natural features these guys did all of that and so we have to check our ego at the door and think hey we're not we're not going to improve on Tillinghast we're just going to restore what he did and try and get the picture as close to You know, the image that was there when he first built the golf course. And if we can do those things, we just have to trust that that's going to be good enough. And you know this, preparing players for major championships. We can do everything we want and need to with the course. The USGA, the PGA can do everything they need or want with the setup, but it's all going to come down to the weather that week. You know, if it rains, the golf course is going to play one way. If it's bone dry, it's going to play another way. If the, You know, the, the crazy thing about Southern Hills is we had like all four seasons in one week. <laughs> so those crazy. guys, had, they had every single possible test, uh, which was great. And I think that added tremendously to the championship. So I think it's learning several things that we've come to accept. And and for a while, when we first started doing this, it was, it was hard to accept is that, hey, once – once the week of the championship starts our hands are off the wheel we've got nothing to do with it and and two is just to accept that tillinghast ross mckenzie those guys were so good at what they did that we just have to trust that their their architecture is going to be be good in this this era as well
3: so let's take a quick break to thank our partner for wellness you guys have heard me talk about it i'm a big fan of their coffee big fan of the good stuff i put it in my coffee on a regular basis the thing i like about it no sugars no artificial sweeteners it's gotten me off dairy um i've quit putting you know sweeteners sugars in just the good stuff Put i also put the good stuff put a scoop of that in my coffee but i also put it in smoothies and take it on the road with me and the other thing that i've been using are their energy bites um, i keep them with me on the golf course um, a lot of times when i'm out on tour i don't have a lot of time to sit and eat so These energy bites, a little coffee hit, a little bit of energy, um, all the good stuff, all natural. And um, if you haven't given those a try, check those out. They've given me a special code to share with son of a butch listeners. You can get 20% off your order, plus free shipping and a free starter kit worth $30 for a limited time when you visit forwellness.com slash Podcast that's spelled F-O-R W E L L N E S dot com slash podcast and enter the code CH3 at checkout. It's their best offer right now, so give it a try. They even back every purchase with a 60-day money back guaranteed. That's again the code CH3 at forwellness.com slash podcast. So now let's get back to the interview.
4: I read that in, in in doing some of the work you did at the Country Club at Brookline, you looked at images, as you said, about Oakland Hills from 1934, you were able to kind of look at the golf course and what it was. Um, Gil, why do you think, so if you look at what you are being tasked to do with a lot of these great old school golden era golf courses, why do you think they have changed so much and you're taking it back to what it was. Why couldn't they stay the way they were? There's a lot of times we see golf courses now that we go back to that, that you guys come into and all the designers come in and they they, there's this push to take it back to the original design, what the original designer wanted. Why do you think golf courses evolve and change to where you're trying to take them back? Is it just evolution? Is it just, what happens with trees and earth and dirt that over 50 60 70 80 years everything changes
2: yeah i mean it's hard to contemplate that somebody would ever put aluminum siding on a frank lloyd Wright house but that happened you know people look at technology and what's new and what's and, and you also have to think that back in the day donald ross tillinghast they weren't gods they were just guys and there were competitors of theirs, younger men who came along in the generation after them who didn't have this reverence for their work. And they were more than happy to put their fingerprints all over it and change it in the, in the basically under the, the guise of, hey, we're modernizing because the game has changed so much. We've gone from hickory shafts to steel shafts. We've changed golf balls, et cetera. You know, not unlike what happens, you know, it's just the history of golf and the, re- the reaction that golf courses have doesn't change. I mean, that's been, it was happening in the twenties, thirties, forties. And so those guys were, were not reticent at all to move a green, blow up a green, do this, do that. And so I think you had this period of time where, and they also had heavy earth moving equipment come into the construction process. You know, it wasn't mules and scrapers moving a green. It was a bulldozer, and excavator, and just push it over there and go ahead and do it. So I think it was a combination of all those factors. The other thing that really added dramatically to it was irrigation. You know, when these guys built golf courses, you didn't have wall-to-wall irrigation. You didn't have the ability to go ahead. And, and so what happens over time is when the first irrigation systems went in, they weren't five row, they weren't three row, they were one row irrigation system. So that went down the center. Now, all of a sudden, you've got this big open golf course with one row of irrigation down the center, and you've got this green swath and all this brown around it. Well, that doesn't look great. So what do we do? Well, we fill the space with trees. We start putting trees in where the irrigation doesn't get and now all of a sudden the trees start to grow in and we start to change and alter the, the the look of the landscape and well what do trees do they grow so eventually the trees grow they fill the space the golf course becomes narrower just through that type of evolution so you have a combination of all these steps and that's where you get to and then you don't get until maybe the late 80s when frank hannigan writes his piece on aw Tillinghast, and it's called the forgotten genius in the USGA golf journal. And then there, next thing you know, there's a Don Ross society and there'd be this appreciation for great golf course architecture. And these golf architects become cult figures. And then it becomes, as you mentioned earlier, part of the, the internet and you can go on and you can Google and you can learn. And now there's a Rainer society a McKenzie society. And I'm, so this evolution gets us to where we are now, where, you know, it's on the back of every scorecard is Seth Rainer design, a uh, uh, AW telling us, and the clubs have appreciation. And thankfully, you know, there's a generation of golf course architects who also recognize that, Hey, what they did is pretty special. Let's go back. So I think that's kind of the timeline of where we got to where we are. And we're, we're really happy that we've been entrusted to, what we think is do the right thing by putting that stuff back.
4: When we look at the great golf courses, um, you know, I, I, I went through and I saw that you listed your, this was in 2020, but uh, you listed your top 10 golf courses in the world. Uh, St. Andrews, uh, National Golf Links, Chicago Golf, Cypress Point, LACC, Marion, Muirfield, Pine Valley, Royal County Down, Royal Melbourne. All of those golf courses originally were designed by The greats, they've stood the test of time. Yes, they've had some tweaks to them. But what is it, Gil, that you think made those golf courses that you put on the, the list? What are the similarities? But what is what do you think made them so great by the designers? Because if you look at what you all know now about grass, about agronomy, about the ability to be able to move earth and things like that, they they were so not like that. And I think there is this big push right now in golf course architecture, wouldn't you agree, that it's to try and move as little earth as possible. And there was a time in the 80s, you know, the Nicholas stuff was all of these big push locks down here in Jupiter, these big giant mounds everywhere. Pete Dye did that at at, um, the Players' Championship, all of this earth move. And it seems to me there's this throwback move now to try and move as little earth as possible. And if you look at the golf courses that you listed as some of your favorites, they aren't, they're they're not golf courses that have a lot of earth moving to them.
2: You've never seen me swing a golf club. So if you, if you look there, a lot of those are wide golf courses. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a big fan of, of options and width. And I think that a lot of what those courses do is they allow the player to determine the way they're going to play the golf course versus the architect determining it for you. And so I think that's, that's the best set of golf is that the, the questions that are asked are compelling for the best players in the world, but they're also compelling for a 30 handicap. And they're also compelling for a, a 10 handicap. And and so that there are options and ways to play. And I think that's a similar, you know, with the exception of Pine Valley, Pine Valley asks questions and you you have to, <laughs> you got to step up and hit a golf shot. Bill Kittleman was, is the the great old pro at Marion who's worked with us on several projects turned 90 the other day so shout out to Bill not that he listens to podcasts but anyway he was an amazing um, mentor to Jim and I but he he, you know there would be occasional times where we'd put a bunker or something in or you'd force carry and he would just look at us and say you know son sometimes you just got to hit a golf shot and that's just part of the test but I think in in by and large those golf courses occupy great natural sites the architects maximize the potential of those sites they gave you options they asked really interesting questions within the landscape so i think that's what we look for i think is is, as i mentioned earlier the the move to these more remote sites were and the questions that were asked of McKinsey and crump is you know just build us the best golf course not build us the best golf course and hide the car pest because we want to have wall-to-wall car pest, not build us the best golf course and, oh, by the way, we need a waterfall or we need a lake. Oh, by the way, we need to photograph this. It was solely, purely about golf. And I think that's ultimately what what led them to be so great. And that's what the the Mike Kaisers of the world are looking at. They're just saying, hey, find the best piece of property and build us something that's solely related and, and predicated on quality of golf. And I think if you look at those 10... And you can quibble whether some belong, some don't, et cetera. And that's one of the great things about what we do, right? We talk about golf is why do you like this? Why do you like that? I understand fully The Shinnecock Hills is probably a better, quote-unquote, test of golf than national. But I'd rather play it national. Because it's just more fun, it's more interesting. There's more opportunities to play. But you, as, as an accomplished player, you might be like, "No, are you kidding me should have cost so much better than me. so." There's, and that's the great thing about that we get to we get to argue the merits based on what we see, and there's and there's no right or wrong.
4: One of the quotes that I, am in, in looking into to talking to you today, I love that you said this. The soul of what you are doing is trying is about the playing of the game, right? Not about all of the other things. You know, Gil, I, I worked at uh, Austin Golf Club, uh, not Austin Country Club. But I worked at Austin Golf Club for Ben Ben Crenshaw's home course um, that he did with um, Bill. And I worked there for a year. And there was a new course that opened up in Austin. This is like 2005, um, another new course. And somebody said, hey, Ben, have you played that? He said, yeah, I played it the other day. I thought it was great. And some guy said, yeah, it was really, really nice. But uh, I mean, a tour pro would just destroy that golf course. And, and Ben Crenshaw said, You know, there'll never be a professional golf event at that golf course, right? He said, if you look at all of the golf courses on the planet Earth, it's less than 1% that will ever have a professional golf tournament on there, but everyone that plays golf looks at it, I think, through the lens of the professional, right? So how do you balance all of this out? Because obviously you're trying to balance out building golf courses, doing a restoration, let's say at a place, you know, like... Los Angeles Country Club, the members are going to play it. So it has to be playable for them, but it also has to be a test to professional golfers. And I don't think, and you probably are, you're in the same world that I am. I don't think our listeners realize the difference between professional golf, tournament golf, major golf, the caliber of shots, the type of golf you have to play to play those golfers, and then what the rest of us do. Who aren't on television, right? There is a massive difference. How do you balance it out between saying, okay, what am I going to try and test here for the players? Uh, You know, for a major championship, you know that if you're going into LACC, the U.S. Opens there in 2023. So, whatever design work you're going to do to change the golf course to take it back to old pictures, and ultimately, the showcase is going to be this this coming June when the best players in the world. Or there how are you trying to balance that test
2: well it, it comes down to you know, two things one thing that you know what ben was talking about which by the way bill and ben are you know, they've been so so good to me and to, and jim and they're just the best just the best people but also the best designers and so i, I they're they're incredible and from that standpoint you know but we all work for clients Right. Everybody seems to think, oh, well, Gil Hans thought that was a great idea to do a hoopy match club. Uh, uh-uh. That was Michael Walras idea. And he came to us and he said, hey, I've got this crazy idea. I want to build a golf course where you don't ever write your score down you play. And you're like, yeah, that's incredible. And so we have to work for what the client's looking for. If the client's goal is to host a major championship, like, you know, we just built the, the new course in PGA Frisco, which is going to host a senior I saw some pictures
4: of that yesterday that first kind of leaked out online. Again, looks very, very minimal, kind of that, that bunkering that looks like kind of found object bunkering and things like that.
2: Yeah, and, and that's you know interesting. We, we, we found nine holes and we had to construct nine holes. And so I'm hopeful that at the end of the day, you know, Jim and I think if you can't figure out which ones we built and which ones we found, then we've actually done a really good job out there. Um, so, But you're working for the client. And that ultimately is, is what you have to build your golf course for. Like if he's saying, Hey, I want to, I want to challenge all my buddies. they are single digits and I, that's who's going to play out here. And that's the reputation. Well, great. If it's, you know what, no, my mom and dad are going to play golf out here with me and I want them to be able to enjoy the test of golf. So there's a lot of that baked into new course design from a restoration standpoint, it, it gets back to that whole, just trusting the original architect. And then ultimately, as I say, when the, our hands are off the wheel when Kerry Haig and John Bodenhammer step on site for setting up major championships. And we have built such a great relationship with both those guys and their teams that we trust that they get it. And they have ultimately goals for what they're, you know, everybody says, well, they must have a target score. No, they don't, because it's all down to the weather that week and the way this, this setup ultimately works. But George Thomas at LACC was such a genius that he figured out ways that through the setup of the golf course. And that's something that we focus a lot on. We focused in Frisco. We focused in Rio for the Olympics was that on any given day, if the architecture is good enough, they can set that golf course up as hard as they want or as easy as they want. So if you give options to tuck pins or bury pins where it actually, you know, the the interesting conversation, and I'll ask you this question because the guys that you teach you know, are angles relevant anymore? They hit it so far, so well. Do they really care if they've got a bad angle coming into a green? Do they really care if a pin's tucked up behind a bunker? Do they ever think, you know, do I want to get to this side? And, and I think a lot of what we see in major championship preparation is that that becomes more relevant because the penalties are that much more severe if you don't hit the shot. The rough is thicker, it's harder. You know, it's not like a regular tour setup every week and week out. And so I think Ultimately, if the original golf architect has provided enough setup opportunities that, um, you know, the, the Wednesday seniors after lunch event at LACC, those guys can go out and have fun. And in June 2023, they can set it up so that it's difficult enough for the best players in the world. And you're spot on the difference in quality between what they what they do. I mean, people always say, oh, how are you going to absolutely like, we're not? You know, the golf course is going to be, the weather is going to be what challenges them, whether it's firm. And I think that's, sorry to digress and ramble, but, you know, that's ultimately the best defense. You know, if we have good architecture, we have, uh, if the wind blows and if the golf course is firm, because you work with these guys and, and in my mind, I'm thinking you're working with them to have a predictable outcome every time they swing the golf course. When they swing a seven iron, the outcome's predictable. When they swing the driver, it's predictable, predictable. But when the ground is firm, and bouncy they don't that's not a predictable is it going to bounce twice and stop is not going to stop is it going to check you know those types of things ultimately add so much to the test and those are completely out of our hands
3: so let's take a short break and we will be back right after this
5: addresses, and select goods. That's leesa.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.
3: Let's get back to the
4: interview. I think one of the things in major championships, Gil, when we're walking around with players over the 20 years that I've been doing this, I don't think the people that are listening would they would they'd be blown away what we're talking about. I'd say the majority of the time when we're talking about non-technical stuff on the golf course, from a strategy standpoint at majors, it's all about where you want to miss it, right? And so there's this this fine line between talking about where you want to miss it and where you're trying to hit it. And I remember I, I worked years ago. Trevor Lilliman who's a good friend of mine. He's been in the podcast. Um, Trevor was too smart for golf, right? His brain was just too smart. <laughs> he, he overthought everything. And he would just obsess about outcome, 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 outcome. Right? And we played a practice round with Tiger when he won at Royal Liverpool, where he just shot zero, where super baked out and had that great round where he never hit driver. And we played a practice round with Tiger, and this is like, you know, In the day, Tiger, Tiger Mania. Mm -hmm. And watching, I mean, Trevor watched the way Tiger and Steve Williams went around that golf course. And everything was about, okay, that's where we're going to hit the golf ball. That's where we're going to hit the golf ball. And if we miss it, we miss it there. And that was it. It was point A to point B. And if we are going to miss it, the miss is better from here than it is from there we're either going to lay short of these bunkers or we're going to take it over. it. And, and I think it was interesting to watch a young kid early in his career like that for Trevor. He was like, Tiger just makes golf so easy. And I was like, yeah, because he focuses on where he's trying to hit the golf ball. And then he thinks about where he's going to miss the golf ball if he's going to miss it. And if you think about it, that's a pretty that's a pretty good philosophy. But we are doing a lot of, from a technique standpoint, you know, we are doing a lot of, the player is looking out. Okay, can we get it over those trees? What's the risk versus the reward? Um, obviously, still the players I'm working with don't have distance issues. Right? There's this massive debate in, you know, in modern golf today. Um, distance. How do you deal with that as an architect? So, I'll give you a great example: Marion in 13. Uh, the the first par three is that par three in the composite. Yeah, and um, it was a little into the breeze, and DJ was playing with Jeff Ogilvy and Lucas Glover. And DJ hit three wood and came up short, and Lucas and uh, Jeff both hit driver and came up short. And as we're walking up to the green, Jeff Ogilvy looks at us and says, "Man, what a great hole, huh? We all just missed the green with a driver and a three wood." And I think there is this philosophy for the average golfer that we've got to make golf courses longer and length but the players don't want that the best players in the world who are the longest don't want that they don't want the golf clubs or the golf courses to be longer they want to be I think they want to be questioned and forced to hit good shots and as you know the Rory McElroy's of the world the John Roms the Justin Thomases the Dustin Johnson smith they want the golf course as hard as possible they want hard golf courses i mean we did we've 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 gone so much Gil, in looking at players we've looked at stats and gone okay your type of golf is predicated on your good ball strike you this and again using trevor emelman as an example trevor hated going to places like palm springs hated going to places like that i remember once i was working with him this is like two three years ago he was in Palm Springs and he was shooting, you know, he missed the cut. And he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shoot a hundred when I go to Torrey Pines next week. And I'm like, you'll play great at Torrey Pines next week. This is a hard golf course. And he finished top 10. And he was like, I have no idea how I finished top 10 because I go to go to Palm Springs. I'm like, those golf courses, like you said, they're wide open, they're easy, there's no kind of premium. The best players in the world want their games to shine and be identified so how do you from a distance standpoint deal with that today because everybody's saying the golf ball and the players hit it too far
2: a lot of it's just the natural constraints of the property like if you're dealing with an old golf course we we jim and i believe strongly that we we hate to create what we call a disconnect where you know what we what most of us love about great old golf courses you walk off the green and you're pretty much right on the next tee
4: Oh yeah, it's great. if
2: you if you've got to create something, and, and you know Wingfoot was one example where number twelve, you know, you could, you walk back a hundred yards to to a tee that's appropriate for them. I hate that we didn't create it; it was there. But it was one of those things where we don't want to break up the flow of the round of golf. Those guys are so used to just walking back that it's not like they're noticing the fact that they're walking back. You know, you and I might notice. Boy, this is getting tiresome. Not that I'd ever play back there, but you know, we this is getting tiresome. So we try to as best we possibly can just say, hey, this is the distance that ultimately correlates the best with what Thomas was trying to do, with what Ross was trying to do. And that may wind up being 7,300 yards, and that's fine. you know, And that's long, but it's not long for them. We don't feel, there's there's nothing we can do to physically challenge those guys with length. They can hit it so far, it doesn't really matter if it's 77, 7,800, it's just going to be boring. To watch that sort of thing we'd rather have a more compelling and interesting test and then the other thing you start to think about is okay do the math if we're trying to build and the, the best golf courses in the world have the variety of shots they have a par three like the the third at marion um, and then they have a par three like the 13th at marion that's 120 yards you can't have a 130 yard par three and a 310 yard par four and do the math and get to 7800 so you start to sacrifice the variety and the quality of golf holes in order to reach this mythical number and so we don't we don't ever focus on the yardage it's not the primary thing our primary goal is to create the best the most compelling and interesting set of 18 golf holes and and on these major championship tests um, you know, that's been somebody else's work and we've stuck to that. We haven't said, Oh, you know, by the way, we could get 50 yards here, but it would just totally destroy the way the golf hole was intended to be played. So, you know, we, we just, Jim and I are not on the sort of beating the bandwagon of, okay, we got to roll the ball back. We got to, it's just like, listen, the smarter people will figure that out. We're just working with what we have, you know, it could be next year that all of a sudden we've got to roll back. And now, now we've got to think about shortening some golf courses, but I think it's, it, distance is never the primary focus we're distance but we also don't think that that's going to be you know the be all end all now that being said we built a golf course in texas and frisco that you know if you stretch it from back to back back hole locations back tees can play like 7800 yards but that is really again just to provide options for carry hague you know, he may get a downwind and he may be able to pull a tee back 50 yards that because the winds blow howling out of in downwind and okay, now that makes sense, but it's within the context, again, getting back to set up as architecture for major championships, as, as many tools as we can give those guys in their toolbox, then they're going to create a better test for the best players in the world. But yeah, distance isn't, uh, it's nothing. It's not something Jim and I dwell on.
4: One of the things my dad has always said, um, If you think about all of the great iconic par threes, they're not 210. They're not 190. All of the great, great par threes that provide, from a major championship standpoint, they provide great theater, um, you know, uh, 12 at Augusta. There's these great holes. I think, I thought you guys did a great job with that little short hole at um, the country club this year, down the hill. All the players... Um, Gil loved that. They all got there and went, oh, this is really, really cool. Whereas you would think that they wouldn't think a short hole downhill. I mean, that guys are hitting pitching wedge and stuff. But, you know, if you miss that green, you're, you're struggling to, to get it up and down. Um, why do you think that is, that all these great, iconic par threes aren't super, super long and they tended to be a kind of cool, almost funky design?
2: I think that, I mean, from our perspective, the, the hardest holes to design are long par threes because they're already hard by their nature because they're long, right? And so you're asking somebody with one shot to hit a green with a wood in their hand, not to hit a fairway, hit a green. And then, so what do you do to make them more difficult? You don't want to put water on them. You don't want to put bunkers all over them. Whereas a lot of the more iconic holes have got sit in, in the landscape beautifully and because they've got bunkers around them because it's 130 or 140 yards or there's an ocean along the side of the golf hole because you know it's all right it's not that long so i think it's a combination of all of those things is how do you make long holes interesting and, and i've talked to tour players and they, they look at long par threes and they're like yeah you know what i just want to hit the green and get out of here with three and, and move on there's never any sort of a feeling of aggression and, and architecturally as I mentioned before, we don't feel like physically we can do anything to challenge those guys with length. And so the focus then goes back to the mental. And a hole like 11 at the country club last year, if those guys have a wedge in their hand, they can't help but be aggressive. It's just no. not in their DNA. They it's can't stand there You're and right. go, you know what? I'm, I'm going to try and miss this 15 feet short so I've got an uphill putt. No. Yeah,
4: they're looking at the yardage going, okay, yeah, I'm just going yeah. right out." this. It's one, 115 downhill. I, I, you're right. No matter where they put the pin, whether they, they put it front right, front left, back, where, wherever they put that pin in a tournament, it's 115 right yards at it. to a player, and, and we saw down, had, go right at the that, whole that hole had hole. a
2: significant bearing on the championship. I mean, Scotty Scheffler, if he'd played that hole, you know, if he'd part it, he probably would wins the U.S. Open championship. And so it's one of those things where we understand that there's a certain mentality and aggression that, that and, and we almost want to give them enough rope that if they take take the bait, then we've got them. And I think Pete Dye was so good at that. You know, we think about the angles that he set up and, and you know that a player will look at a shot and go, okay, what's my cover on the hazard? What's the distance to the hole? And okay, if the cover is this and the distance is that, then they're like, all right, I know I can't be short. But if the cover is on this line is 130, and if you play to the right of that, it's a hun- the is 120. And if you play to the left of it, it's 140. Now it's like, oh man, if I miss, if I play the 130 and I pull it just a little bit, now I'm in trouble. So it's, it's those sort of setups where you've got the angles, which ultimately, like I said, Pete was, was a magician with those things. I know it's interesting. I'll I'll never forget, you know, back when I was younger, um, we did work at Doral, which was, you know, part of the regular tournament rota. And so the first year that the tournament was there after the, the renovation and, you know, Uh, players well now, nowadays with with social media, you know, they set the stage in the first practice round. (laughs) If somebody doesn't like something, it it gets tweeted, et cetera. And so there was some chirping, I don't even think uh, maybe Twitter was around, but there was some chirping, some players uh, in interviews and I was walking, following a group and your dad was there and he was walking and he pulled me aside and he he used colorful language, which I won't use, but he said, he (laughs) he said, don't let these guys get you down. He said, this is a hard golf course. There's nothing wrong with it. And there's nothing wrong with these guys playing a hard golf course. Yeah, said, absolutely. You did a great job here. So getting back to that, you know, and, and those golf right. courses identify the best players and we had great, great players win at Dural was three years after the rest, you know, the renovation of the golf course. So I, I agree the great players, they like it hard. They want to play difficult. And, you know, you hear the stories about Jack walking into the, into the locker room and guys grumbling, he's like, okay, I know I got that guy beat. And so it's, there's the, the great players in this day and age, you know, the Rory's, so they walk in tiger, obviously in his day, they, they know, okay, you know, this is like you're saying with Trevor Immelman, you know, when it's a shootout, anybody in the room can win. Yeah. When is this, when it's a major, then, you know, there's really only 20 guys. Maybe some guy gets really lucky and gets hot that week. And I think that, so we have to remember that, when we do work and we've had a little bit more cover because, you know, it's, it's hard to say wing foot's bad because Gil Hansen did anything. It's Tillinghask golf course, you know, so it's ultimately, and we'd love to go into the weeks of major championships saying, Hey, focus on Thomas, focus on Tillinghask, et cetera. But when it's our own work, you know, you hear this chirping and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. It, you you want to get on your soapbox and say, no, that's not what we we're trying to do. But then you come across as sounding defensive and shrill. And so it's just like, okay, and, and as you were saying, the golfing public takes, because he's great at golf, he must know what he's talking about when it comes to architecture. He must know that this is a bad golf hole because he said it's a bad golf hole versus bad
4: golf, It's a bad golf hole because he made double and
2: he made, yeah. golf that he made double. Okay. Right. So so we I've learned to be more patient with those sorts of things.
0: Let's take a quick break.
5: Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's L E E S A dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.
3: And we are back.
4: Whether it's your work or whether it's the uh, course that you've come in and, and, and helped change um when there is a major championship there when you watch players um not struggle but when you watch players hit shots um and don't make pars um that get into trouble as an architect are you like okay that's what we wanted to do that's we wanted to try and challenge and it makes you feel good you take you know, some weird perverse thing kind of going, Ha! we got, this. I have always wondered that because, you know, the golf course, when you play golf courses, it's, it's hard to remember the guys that design them. They're, they're doing it to, to challenge you. The the golf course is supposed to be challenged. I think I read somewhere. I I, I want to say this is correct. Alistair McKenzie. Was he in, did he do camouflage in the army? And you he did, did something. Yeah. So it's designed by design. The, the architect is trying regardless of your handicap, they're trying to test you. So when you watch a golf course, do you get after the U.S. Open at the country club? Do you and Jim get together by yourselves and say, hey, we did a good job on this hole because that's the challenge we wanted. We liked that they, they struggled with this. We liked the fact that he hit it to 20 feet, made par, and somebody else in the group down the stretch made double because 20 feet was a good shot, not to five feet.
2: Yeah, we, we definitely, we, we watch, we're nervous, um, and, and for, the, for two reasons. There's, so the, the, the learning curve, like you mentioned, is important to us, because we're fortunate now we're gonna be doing this for a while. We've got a crazy lineup of courses that we're involved with that are gonna host major championships over the next decade, um, and so we wanna learn and get better our craft and so we focus on things from that perspective and see see what works and what doesn't the bigger perspective of how we get nervous is really more the perception of the golf course and that's mostly through the members eyes because rightly or wrongly um you know if justin thomas shoots 15 under instead of i don't know it was six or seven or whatever he won with somebody's gonna say oh southern hills is too easy And, you know, that golf course wasn't good enough to host a major championship, but they shoot, Matt Fitzpatrick shoots five or six under, you know, Hey, that was a tough test of golf. That was great. And the members walk away, you know, kind of excited and and pumped that their golf course stood up to the best players in the world. And you get a crazy situation like Wingfoot in 20, which was just an odd open because of COVID and the whole thing, you know, Bryson shoots 600. He's the only guy under par in the entire field. Yep. And somebody said to me, you know, well, what, what was it like giving up the, you know, the record low score for the U.S. Open at Wingfoot? I'm like, that was your takeaway from the whole week was the one guy. Gil,
4: actually- you know, I heard that there as well. I mean, the way Bryson was playing that week and, you know, my, my family has so much history there. And you felt like there were a number of members at, at Wingfoot that were upset that Bryson came in and, and was doing the things he's doing as opposed to going, listen, he's doing something amazing on a really really hard golf course like you said it's not like you know six under one and lost in a playoff and then there were two guys at five and four at four and three I mean they're with one guy
2: yeah and I think that so so everybody gets fixated on the score as being the sort of the arbiter of the quality and and as we've been discussing that's really got everything to do with setup and weather that week and that's ultimately what what dictates the how the score goes. Our stand, from our standpoint, the most important thing is that we get a great champion. Yeah. You really just want, hopefully, the work that we've done in the golf course to identify a great champion. And so that when people look at who won the major championship on that year in that place, they go, yeah, we're really proud to have Justin Thomas. We're really proud to have Matt Fitzpatrick. We're really proud that there were great players that won these events versus... And no, no offense to, to the lesser-known players, but you'd really would rather not have that habit. So I think if there's any rooting interest, you might start to think, okay, coming down the stretch, yeah, you know, all right, we'd rather have that guy be the major champion versus that guy. And so I think that's the only, being completely honest, that's really the only rooting interest. We're not sitting there going, boy, we'd love to see them both double the last hole. Because I think, honestly, we, Jim and I, in our own designs, we like to see positive outcomes win championships. I think it's much more memorable if a guy makes a eagle the last to hit. win a major championship than yeah, yeah. One guy made a bogey, another guy made a double to lose. Yeah, that you know, uh, that's not our mindset when it comes to golf and setup. You
4: mentioned setup of a golf course that once you get to once the design happens, you guys come in, you do to the, the the renovation, the the redesign, the tournament goes on. you mentioned setup. Um, there are so many times that. I think sometimes the setup can make the golf course almost unplayable. You know, I, we were at Marion and, and it was Sunday and one of the members was working the driving range and he said, you know, our course has held up pretty good. They haven't beaten it up. And I'm thinking in my head, you, you've never played this golf course. You, you, first of all, you can't play the configuration of what it is. But on Sunday at a U.S. Open, Nobody is ever going to play a golf course from a setup standpoint that is that baked out, that the greens are that firm, that the rough has gotten that much up. You, just, you The average golfer couldn't finish that golf course. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes, is it not frustrating, but as you said, golf is an outdoor sport. They look like they're going to get weather. They're, they're trying to stay away from that. Is sometimes, is there sometimes not so much frustration, but you look at it and go, oh, I wish we could have kept the golf course set up this way, as opposed to it being set up that way.
2: Yeah, it's usually on the the easier side, right? It's usually, uh, and, and we had nothing to do with this. And you know, back earlier, I had a, sm- a, a small career in television, and we'd do the U.S. Open and Fox had the coverage. And Wednesday at Oakmont in 2016. That was the best conditioned golf course I think I've ever seen in my life. It was, it was incredible. It was, it was so good. And then you get two and a half, three inches of rain Wednesday night into Thursday morning, and it totally changed everything. And it was like, you know, I, I can't even imagine the heartache from the superintendent and the staff oh, and all the they, volunteers. Everything mean, they
4: had it so good. It was playing bouncy. It was playing firm. You had guys from the fairway and the rough thinking, okay, maybe I can chip this out and get this just, I mean, DJ on the first hole, I remember his first hole of the tournament, he hit it into the left rough at Oakmont. And I'd already seen a bunch of guys try and go for that green, catch the flyer out of the rough, bounce it over, go down that little hump. And I'll never forget. DJ laid it out front edge, chipped it up, putted it up, made, made, made part. And afterwards, AJ said, "Dude, I did not even know who my brother was in the, on the first hole. Normally we're going (laughs) right at that pin. We're making double or triple. And, he had learned that, but the way that course was set up, like you said on Thursday, can be so different than the way it is by the time it gets to Sunday.
2: Yeah, and, and and we so I guess the best way to is you want the setup. We we do. Other people may the priorities may be reversed, is we want the setup to flatter the architecture, is to show off every aspect of the architecture that's available to the setup guys, different whole locations. You know, you, you don't want it to be so firm and so baked out that uh, we can't use that whole location because it's just over the over the edge. You don't want it to be so soft that they're starting to say, oh, man, we've got to go two and a half paces from the edge instead of three. You know, and you're starting to go the opposite direction. You really just, you know, the, the thing that, that most people don't realize, and I've been fortunate enough to be involved in all these conversations and just you know, fly on the wall, is how much thought and preparation goes into like, you know, th- their, their setup visits start 18 months before a championship. And then they're that's coming crazy. in they're constantly refining and tweaking. And so for people to think that, oh, they just made a, that random decision to put a whole location there today and it didn't work out. No, they've been thinking about that whole location for like, over a year. And so if the setup flatters the architecture and the architecture flatters the, the setup and allows them to use everything, that's the, that's the sweet spot. That's exactly where you want it to be. I think we look at it as we don't want it to go so far to the easy side, and that the conditions because of Mother Nature, um, that's worse than going. Although you don't want it to get gimmicky, you know, where it goes so far the hard side that you know the best players in the world are. You know, I don't want to beat it up, but you know, there's like seven at Shinnecock back in two thousand four. I think it was. guys, mm-hmm. I mean, the best players in the world can't hit a green with a mid iron and it's like that's there's something wrong there that's not right either so you just hope and i know that john bodenhammer kerry higg and their teams they don't want to be part of the story they want to get through the week and not have anybody have any blow-ups or any any issues so it's the combination of the preparation hopefully the, the certainly the talents of the superintendent and if but the wild card is always mother nature so that's what it comes down to
4: as an architect um we we've talked there does seem to be a, a trend towards taking golf courses back to the way they used to look, um, that style. And the agronomy, I think, is changing. There, there's been this, in my opinion, this Augustification of golf courses where there can't be any brown, everything's got to be green. And as a result, Gil, you have to put so much water on the golf course to have it have this aesthetic look so it looks like Augusta. And no disrespect to what they do at Augusta National, but a lot of times when you're out at that golf course, it, it, it looks somewhat, not. the only term I could come up with, parts of it look like it's fake, that it's, it's so overdone, right? It's so over manicured. There's these great photos that I come across every now and again of my grandfather when he won there in 1948, he hit it in the water on 13, and the water on 13 looks like a ravine you'd find in West, you know, in Texas, there's grass and there's all this stuff. None of it looks ultra, ultra pristine. And I think that it's been cool. I mean, we went um, two years ago and they went back to this year, Congaree on the PGA tour where they went and played. What a cool golf course. Wasn't necessarily perfect green everywhere. It had a little brown to it. It had what you talked about to where you walked from the green to the t but it, mm-hmm. it had some some natural parts to it and as a designer how do you judge that because again if the client wants it to look like augusta and look super super green and super super perfect that's really a different design than someone say hey just go find the golf holes
2: yeah i think that that comes down to client selection right i mean we're, we're and you know I, I realize how fortunate we are in that we. We have the ability to say no. And so if somebody comes and says, hey, we want Augusta, we want a perfect set, we've got to really think long and hard of it. If that's something that that we want to do, because I agree with you 100%. I'm much, we're much more in the line of natural presentation, firm, fast. Uh, I got to spend a year in Great Britain and part of a scholarship from Cornell. And that's what, that's really what, all of my principles and focus came from that and the natural presentation of golf courses, as well as the natural design of golf courses. Augusta National does what they do, they do it better than anybody else. It's the most anticipated Thanks. tournament of the year. We all look to it. But I think if you gave truth serum to every superintendent in the country, they hate it. Because they look at that and the members come in the next day and like, oh, did you see it? Oh, man, it was great. The greens are 14. Look at that. It was beautiful. And the yeah, there's no, look at that
4: little brown spot on the right. <laughs> can you get rid of that? Because they don't have can that get,
2: Augusta. Yeah. And so that's, that's I mean, very frustrating for superintendents because nobody has the, well, very few budget. people have the resources <laughs> to, to, to do that and make sure that they can keep it and maintain it. But it is, it is, and you're right. That's the evolution of Augusta. Augusta has evolved into that. It is so iconic. As I said, it's so anticipated. There's no way they could ever change that. I mean, they yeah. just can't go back to the the weedy banks and the grasses <laughs> and the, the McKenzie bunkers with all the rough-hewn edges, et cetera, et cetera. That's sailed and maybe for the better because, you know, we all love it. It's not like people turn off the tournament and nope. go, boy, that golf course is maintained too well. I don't want to look at that, those white yeah, sand it's, bunkers.
4: It's amazing. Lastly, Gil, um, in 2022, from a design standpoint, um, what role do you think that the designers – designing golf courses today have to play in trying to grow the game. Um, we've built a nine hole, my dad and, and Kelly Gibson here, we built a nine hole par three course um, where I think the longest holes, probably 120 yards. It's nine holes. It's, it's changed the club. You um, guys play the main course and then they get done, they have lunch and they load up on, you know, booze and, and get the music going and go play, you know, 90 yard, 80 yard shots. Um, from an instruction standpoint, Gil, getting people on golf courses, they're not good enough to go play. Even if you take them to the ladies' tees, skill they're not good enough to play the golf courses. Do you think – I know it's not cost-effective, but do you think we're going to see more maybe nine-hole, three-hole, 12-hole golf courses that aren't necessarily super, super hard, that are user-friendly to help try and grow the game?
2: Yeah, we, we built a golf course in in a in little 9 hole at Pinehurst, the cradle. Oh, it's unreal. And it's, and real good. Just, it's it, it has, you know, and Bob Deb and Tom Pashley, you know, they took a chance to, to make fun the front door for the clubhouse at Pinehurst and, you know, with the putting, giant putting green and then the cradle. And I get more pleasure out of watching people just tooling around out there with their grandkids or parents sitting in the Adirondacks watching their kids play or eightsomes of, you know, knuckleheads playing barefoot and drinking beers and just the, somehow that just clicked and the magic of it and, and that sort of excitement of getting people the introductory level to the game is based on fun versus frustration you got plenty of time to get frustrated with this game have fun get to it in a fun manner and i think that that's in, incredibly important we've got um you know people i do instagram occasionally and you get yeah i've stopped because like i don't really need that in my life but you know whenever we put up pictures of these great private clubs that we've done et cetera, they're like oh great you know i'm never going to get to play there thanks exactly. for putting that up and it's like that's all we do but we probably our most anticipated golf course is, is going to open sometime next year is the park in west palm beach it's a municipal you guys golf guys coming, course
4: because we fly over that when we land into to, to yep. pbi if you're coming in off the ocean it's over there on the on the left if you're taking yep. off it's over there on the right And that looks very much like when you fly over it, it looks like when you fly over Seminole, just looks like a bunch of sand. And it really does have that same kind of look.
2: Yeah. So it's uber wide, very playable, interesting. But then again, it's just that there's enough there that, you know, somebody who's beginning in the game could just. Bunt it, bunt it, bunt it, get up on the green. You know, you've got to think a little bit, but then somebody like you would get out there and be like, okay, I'm going to attack this pin, that pin. You can really set that whole setup. And then with the sandy areas and they're all kind of, you're not going to lose a golf ball. There's no water. There's no water on the golf course. It's super friendly. You know, just go out and play golf and not get frustrated with it. And so we're almost, well, we're, we're as excited about the opening of that because it can show hopefully from in our opinion that. Great architecture, modestly speaking. Um, great maintenance, playability, wide corridors, etc. Can actually happen in the transfer to municipal golf course where anybody and everybody can go out there for a reasonable price and, and play that. So, I, I think we'd love to be in a position to help to grow the game. We've done that wherever we possibly can, doing pro bono stuff with first tees and, and, and municipal golf courses. Um, hopefully not only are we doing something that'll make the game more playable and enjoyable, but that somewhere in some person who's just coming to the game, they'll, they'll start to think, I wonder why I like that hole. I wonder why I don't like that hole. I wonder why this is there and that. And then I think, you know, and so I'm sure you, you, you know, it's when you start to get to a level where you appreciate architecture and you start to appreciate thought, that opens up such a, a, another element of the game versus just trying to get the ball airborne and, and survive when you get to a place where you can actually start to think about, okay, there are questions that are being asked out here. Then I think the entirety of the game and then the, the entire beauty of the game um, really becomes apparent to, to players.
4: Well, I really appreciate you talking to me. Um, I could talk to you forever. Um, I didn't even get to <laughs> my favorite golf course is Les board in France. And I know you guys have done the second course there. Yeah. Um, I love that place. That's to me, that is a magical, magical place. Um, I have yet to see the new redesign at LA country club where the u.s open is going to be this year but i'm super excited and if it's anything like um, the rest of the work that you guys do it's it's going to be amazing uh if there's somebody better that in in golf and our design than than what you guys are doing i don't know who it is because you guys are doing you know some amazing amazing work so hats off to you guys and uh thanks for talking to us and we'll look forward to seeing you uh at another major I mean, you, you're like you're like Tiger Woods at this point. You're just walking around, and all the other golf course architects architects are looking at you, going, "Man, another major," and you're just going, "Yep, yeah, another major. Yep, yeah, another major."
2: It, it, it's funny because people say, "Are you going to go?" and I'm going, "Yeah, I usually go sort of Tuesday through Saturday, maybe, and then leave." And they're like, "You don't stay for the end." I was like, no, "If they're talking about the golf course on the weekend, then something probably went wrong." So we cover all our bases. When, once those guys show up, that's what the focus should be. You know, it's, it's on them there. And so we talked about the golf course going into the tournament, but after that, we, we let them play it and see how it goes. Well, thanks. I really enjoyed it. It was a great time. Happy holidays. Great to talk
4: to you and uh, we'll hope to see you
3: soon. So that was Gil Hantz, um, really, really cool interview and hopefully, um, something that I want to try and get more on on the pod is golf course architects, because they're the ones that are designing the golf courses that all of us are trying to play. And I think anytime you can kind of listen to what they're talking about and how they're doing things. Um, I actually think it can help you be, to be honest with you, play better golf. So um, I want to thank Gil for doing that. I um, wanted to mention on a sad note, uh, the passing of Barry Lane. For those of you that don't know, Barry was a stalwart on the European tour um, he died New Year's Eve, was 62 years old, and uh, he was a friend uh, when I worked on the European Tour in the early part of the 2000s. Um, you know, I worked with Barry for a number of years. Um, he was a five-time winner in the European Tour. Uh, he was a big part of their Ryder Cup um, teams in the late 80s and the early 90s, and was just one of really one of the coolest people I've met. And um, he will be missed. Um, I think the outpouring of condolences and um the emotions that a lot of um kind of the old school guys on the European tour from Ian Woosnam to Thomas Bjorn and stuff you know Barry he played the the tour the European tour for over two decades never lost his card and uh was 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 playing on the European Tour Champions uh their Champions Tour but um you know my condolences go out to his wife Camilla and um you know I'll always Look back fondly on the, the times that I got to spend with with Barry. He was, an, he was just an unbelievable ball striker. Um, he was kind of one of the first of the old school guys. Um, he played from a very, very shut position like we see a lot of the modern players. Um, he hit the golf ball miles. He had a lot of speed. He wasn't a very big guy, but um, I think anybody that got to watch him hit golf balls um, was just beyond impressed. And uh, he was just... He was a gentleman and, uh, you know, he will definitely be um, missed. And um, yeah, really, really sad to hear about his passing. Um, But want to thank everybody for all the listens for last year. Um, You know, it's a new year. We're going to try and continue to get good guests. Um, Hit me up on social and uh, let me know the kind of guests um, that you want. Do you want, you know, more guests from the pga tour do you want more guests from live do you want more guests from outside the golf space um let me know and uh i will do my best to get them on but rate review subscribe to wherever you get your podcast son of a butcher comes to you every wednesday we will see you next week